Hey everybody, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Today we've got a really special interview with Eric Serafin, a.k.a. Mixer Man. Now, I'm sure you've heard of Mixer Man, but if you haven't, well, you're really missing out. He is an engineer, mixer, producer, author, blogger, just an all-around cool guy. He's got five books available, Zen in the Art of Recording, Zen in the Art of Mixing, Zen in the Art of Producing, as well as The Daily Adventures of Mixer Man and Hashtag Mixer Man and the Billionaire Apparent, which is his latest book. I'm almost done reading it. It's great. I've got all his other books. You should too. They're well worth a read. You'll learn a lot. You'll laugh. You'll crack up, especially if you've been doing this for a while and you've worked with clients before. You will especially love Daily Adventures of Mixer Man and Hashtag Mixer Man and the Billionaire Apparent. They are hilarious satires, but with a lot of truth in them about uh, just the industry and being an audio engineer, being a mixer, being a producer, and just playing the game. So anyway, guys, I hope you enjoy our talk. We got to talk about all kinds of stuff, uh, music industry, his recent move to Asheville, North Carolina from L.A., where he's you know was for a very long time. And uh, anyway, guys, hope you enjoy. Make sure to check out his website, Mixerman.net, and check out his books. You know, I was looking through your credits on uh, All Music, and I noticed that uh, Bare Naked Ladies album, Everything to Everyone. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really cool album. I remember, um, and I probably still have it on my iTunes library, and uh, it's funny, I didn't know you uh, worked on that, so that's really cool. Yeah, I, they, we spent a couple, few months, two or three months recording that album. Did you record all of it? Mm, good 90% of it. Uh, I had to leave to go mix an album and, and didn't come back after that. I think... Uh, Thoner did the rest of it, but uh, they only had a couple more weeks of recording at that point. And that was uh, Mike Shipley mixed that? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I haven't heard that record in a little bit, but that's a really neat record. All the, I don't uh, think I ever heard it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really neat record. You should check it out. <laughs> so uh, I'm a big fan of the books. I've read all of them. I'm almost done with uh, Billionaire Parent. I think it's hilarious. A lot of fun. Nice break from your typical, uh, you know book about audio <laughs> the payoff on that book's not till the very the very last big chapter i know i'm waiting for it I, i'm I'm, yeah. I'm assuming that there's going to be a good twist uh <laughs> um so uh, and i also really like the uh i read um daily adventures way back when it came out and uh and i just uh, a couple months ago went through the uh, audiobook which i thought was a lot of fun also a lot of fun to have all those guys the voiceovers you know from pensado and all those guys <laughs> ken scott yeah and I did an audiobook for the new one, too. We released the audiobook for the new one at the same time as the hardbound cover. Yes, book. yes. I got that, too. I, uh, I've been, um, been going through that as well. I, hmm. when I, I'll, read in the, I'll read in the book and then go to the, <laughs> you know. Oh, that must be interesting. Yes, it is. It is very interesting. I, it's funny, though, because a lot of the, after going through the first audiobook, the voices are sort of like <laughs> what I expect, you know, they're yeah. like the characters. I hear them better in my head. Um, so it's interesting because sometimes I like there's such different animals, the audiobook and the book book, and they have their own kind of thing, even though they're the same content. Yeah. Like they come off completely differently. And I can't say, uh, like, Sometimes I much prefer the book and and curse myself for having done the audiobook because then I hear those voices <laughs> every time uh, you read the book. And other times, yeah, or check out, you know, I don't read the book very much anymore. <laughs> I, I, I the last time I I just had to go through it one last time for the 
to find any edit mistakes, even though the book's out, there's still, you know, yeah. there's still uh, the occasional typo in there. So I want to get rid of them from the digital book. But when I look at it after the audiobook, it's it's sometimes I have to purposely p- push the audiobook voices out of my head. <laughs> yeah, and just read it as a literary. Yeah, <laughs> as it was originally, yeah, sure. which isn't easy. Yeah, now... Uh, I've got to ask, of course, I'm sure, you know, everyone wonders, you know, how much truth there is to, uh, to billionaire parent, you know, kind of like on Gear Sluts, you talked about, uh, the daily adventures and, you know, saying that, you know, there's quite a bit of truth to it, even though it's not necessarily a nonfiction <laughs> book. Well, it's the same thing. I like to wrap the fiction with the nonfiction and it doesn't really much matter where, where they are because I'm writing such a thin line on that aspect because even the fiction stuff really kind of is like the way it it is these days sure. and i just find that i really enjoy that that combination of of really uh blurring the lines of reality and so there's so much factual information and real time this is what's happening now information mixed in with the storyline that it, it gives it the uh the, the, it gives all the fiction an illusion of, of absolute reality. Sure. And so that's all by design, yeah. Now, when you're writing a book like Billionaire or Daily Adventures, are you sort of writing it day to day to sort of continue that? Like, are you challenging yourself to write almost as if it were a blog, even if it weren't? You know what I'm saying? Yes. On Daily Adventures of Mixer Man, I did write it that way. I wrote it one chapter a day. I, I had the luxury of, of taking time off to do that. Uh, and I didn't have, I never wrote a book before. I wasn't trying to be an author. So sure. I wasn't worried about, I didn't give a shit about whether it was really super polished or not. And and so basically I was putting up first drafts of that book. What I put up online on the Daily Adventures of Mixed Man uh, has been edited heavily for the book. Yeah. And when I say heavily, I don't mean content wise, all the content's the same, but you know, words, how I sure. how I describe something. Uh, you know, uh, uh like when I first posted the Daily Adventures of Mixer Man, I started in the first person and realized on the second day that I didn't want to be in the first person. So I switched. Well, <laughs> you know, that's that's like a big flaw in writing. So I fixed that obviously and and when I made it a book. Yeah. Um and then, you know, I wrote three books between that satire and the billion, hashtag Mixerman and the Billionaire Apparent satire, my newest one. And so I got a lot of uh writing chops in in there. And so now on the new one, I did actually write it chapter by chapter. I sat down, I wrote a chapter, I had a basic understanding of where I wanted to go with it. But I allowed the chapters to bring me where I needed to go. And then if I kind of was starting to get stuck or not sure where I was going, I would figure that out and then continue. But yeah, it was written chapter by chapter in that way. And I probably wasn't, uh, but I was probably three quarters of the way through when I realized, figured out how I was wrapping it up. Sure. But that also gives it, uh, I feel that if I had made an outline and really figured out my plot lines and everything in advance, it wouldn't have come out the same and it would have, <sighs> it's hard to say, but I, I feel that the, it gives it an authenticity writing it like that by doing it day sure. by day. I remember hearing a quote once from Bruce Springsteen and talked about how when he makes a record, he will only write, contrary to what a lot of people do, they'll write, you know, double the content 
and then record, you know, three quarters of it and then only release half of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, he does the opposite. So he, he'll only write, you know, five or six songs and then he'll be listening to them to tell him what to do for the other songs, which I, it's kind of an interesting concept. You know, I guess it works for him. So that's cool. But do you find that there are any similarities to how you like to, I mean, not to get too like meta or anything like, you know, uh, but like to how you make a record, you know, does it feel like sometimes you have to let the, let the project discover itself over time? I mean, do you feel like that's a similarity or no similarity at all? I think that it depends on the book. On this particular book, I can say that no, I can't say it depends on the book. Thus far, on all five books, I pretty much let them go where they're going to go naturally. The trick with fi- that's more dangerous with fiction than with the nonfiction books. Like the Zen books, I can write stream of consciousness because I know the material so well. Sure. You know, I mean, that's, I've lived it. I'm I'm just explaining my philosophies and things that I've spent many many hours considering and dealing with. Of like, oh, I should talk about phase now, and then you can just go. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I kind of just let my fi- it just kind of comes out of my fingers too. So they come off a little stream of consciousness too. The books I feel those Zen books, mm-hmm. um, which is cool you know it's my style i suppose but the the fiction books you got to be really careful because you can write yourself into a corner mm-hmm. fortunately that didn't happen on this one and and i wasn't doing a chapter a day like in the first one i was doing more like a chapter every three days gotcha so i was writing the chapter and then i was i was doing a lot of my editing process then and there and 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 considering where things were going next and where i'd been and and all that so um you know, when you're putting it up online as you're doing it, th- that's pretty dangerous. I don't think I could ever do that again. I, you know, I was a dilettante when I did it, and uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I had nothing to fear. Now, you know, as an author, uh, I don't necessarily want to be putting out my first drafts to the world. So, mm. you know, it's a little different. The, more, the pressure becomes different when you're actually, you know considered an author rather than just considered a producer writing on the internet. Sure. Now, does that philosophy bleed over at all into the way that you had, the way that you make records? Well, records, you know, I'm, 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 if I'm the producer, I, 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 I don't have control over the material in that I've got an artist and he has songs or she has songs or a band, whatever. And I'm operating within the personalities that are there and and the music that's there and so it's it's far more reactionary than when i have complete and total control over what's happening and i'm doing it by myself you know sure they're not they're not your characters at that point <laughs> right so i'm i'm making the this i'm i'm making their their story it's just that i, I you know i'm observing them and listening to them and and understanding them to help them create their vision really Sure. Now with a guy like Ben Harper, is he the type of guy that likes to sort of discover the record as it's being made or is he pretty well scripted out? Well, with Ben, I I was not privy to the recording process on the first on 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 Fight for Your Mind or Will to Live. I mixed those albums, so they came to me fully realized. Um I would say uh, that on Fight for Your Mind, they probably went in with their batch of songs and just recorded them. And, uh, you know, JP is a visionary, JP Plunier, who was his manager for many years and, and was his producer on his first 
at least his first four albums, if not more, was really directing Ben and helping Ben uh, 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 to find himself. And and then after that, on Will to Live, Ben wanted to kind of break out a little more into rock. And I'm sure that that album was recorded actually rather quickly too. I believe that album was recorded in a month. But when it came to the the third album that I worked on, which was his fourth studio album, um, Burn to Shine, uh, I recorded that album and pretty much Ben had come off two solid years of 300 plus date years, you know? And so the guy was absolutely exhausted, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I think he was just really happy to be in LA and be able to just chill out. And he wanted to take some time to make that album. And we did. We took like four, five, six months um, and, and in total. It was six months in total. So, And he was playing less Weisenborn and more uh, more guitar. And at that time, he was still not uh, super skilled on the guitar. I mean, he was probably better than most, but you know, for him, he was a virtuoso. In comparison, he was a virtuoso on the Weisenborn, and that sure. was not his main axe. So yeah. it took him, it was a little bit more um, of a struggle for him. You know, that was 17, you know, that was 18 years ago. So uh, I'm sure his skills in that regard are, are uh, have improved tremendously. But uh, that was the reality at the time. Hmm. Yeah. So um, skipping, kind of sort of switching gears here. Tell us about uh, your recent move across the country. Yeah. You know, just to follow up on that, I, I, basically what I'm saying is, like, the guy was the greatest. In 1998, Ben Harper, and probably still to this day, was the greatest Weisenborn player in the world. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you could not say that about him as a guitar player. And I'm sure you can't say that about him as a guitar player now. But you can still say he's the greatest Weisenborn player in the world. Certainly one of the only in pop music. <laughs> well, not yes. pop, but you know, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So my move. So, you know, I, I was in L.A. for 25 years, basically. In fact, I moved three months short of my 25-year anniversary of being there. And uh, L.A. was very good to me, and I got a lot of work out of L.A., and I did a lot of work with the major labels because of proximity. Mm. And over the years, things changed. In 2008, the bottom really fell out for everybody in this country, in, in every industry, really. And the music business was getting hit hard by streaming. It was getting hit hard by uh, uh, record companies having uh, raped listeners for the better part of a decade by selling CDs for top dollar, $17 a CD with only one reasonably good song in there. <laughs> uh, they were putting out bands that they knew were, they were never going to put out a second album for, so no one had anything they could grasp hold of. They were killing their their catalog because catalog, you know, if if you look at Led Zeppelin, there's five, six, seven, eight records you could buy from Led Zeppelin today that'll be great. Well, are you going to really buy, uh, I don't know, um, some of these one-offs, a one-off, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to actually name some. I, I have gone through four in my head that I don't even want to name, <laughs> that, that I only really have one hit song. Sure. People, they're forgotten. Maybe the song's remembered, but people don't remember the act and they don't have anything, anything invested in them. And so where's the catalog? Now, if you buy Led Zeppelin, you can buy Led Zeppelin 1 and you've just bought the album. If you buy Nine Days, you're going to buy Nine Days Story of a Girl and that's one song. Yeah. So where's the catalog? Uh, and so all of these things, loudness wars didn't help. 
Um, all of these things conspired to to the point where there was no CD sales have been just plummeting for the past eight years yeah. to the point where there's really no sales. I mean, only one album went uh, platinum last year. One. Yeah. Taylor and Swift, yeah. Taylor Swift. Uh, the year before that was only one. It was a uh, it was a, a movie soundtrack. Well, I mean, when I was first in the business, there were you know I I can't even tell you. I actually tried to look it up, but I, easily ten twenty platinum albums, maybe more, maybe forty. I don't know. Yeah. There were diamond albums. There were albums selling ten million, twenty six million. You know. Yeah. Now that's impossible, and now it's all about streams. But the streams they don't pay anything. Yeah. They pay. You know. They say they pay point oh oh eight per stream, but really that would be the same as uh, th they're taking an average, but they're taking an average in a very uh, uh, dishonest way. In other words, like if I say two people, if two of us were to split 10 beads, nine to you, one to me, we could say the average person got five beads, but that's not what happened. <laughs> yeah. One got nine and the other got one. And that's what's happening with the streaming is the streaming requires uh, major label catalog to survive. So that catalog is critical. So that puts the labels in the driver's seat. And so the labels say, well, if you want access to our catalog, you're going to have to give us a lot of money. Yeah. And so the streaming sites pay out a, a ton of money, not as streams though, as advances mm -hmm. to the labels. And the labels, they don't share that revenue with their artists. Yeah. They don't share. Now, Led Zeppelin held out. The Beatles held out. They probably held out to to say, hey, you guys want to put us on streaming? You're going to have to pay, pay us. So they had that kind of leverage. But most other artists don't have that kind of leverage. Yeah. And there's it's impossible to organize just about. So so now the labels are taking Spotify in this example, we'll just use Spotify as an example, takes 30% of their of the revenues per month off the top for their operational costs. Now I don't know how many people work at Spotify, but it's probably not <laughs> all that many. And they they claim they don't make a profit, but they're all getting paid. You know, the CEO's sure. getting paid. Yeah. The vice president's getting paid. And they're getting paid a lot, a lot, a lot of money because the average employee is making what? 175000 oh, oh, or something, something like stupid. that? I read somewhere that there's only about 20 or 30 people that work there. Exactly. I mean, or something ridiculous. Exactly. You know, like okay. So the guy who, who made it is making lots of money and I'm sure they're dipping into dividends and all sorts of other things that people don't understand about business. And then they say, well, we're not making a profit. And technically- as far as the the tax collection services around the world are concerned, they're not making a profit. Yeah. <laughs> but they're making a lot of money, the people that are doing it. So so they take 30% off the top. Now, that's regardless of what revenue they bring in. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I run a business and I don't really have the luxury of, of taking 30% off the top and then saying to my employees when I have employees or the people that I hire, well, I only have this left, so you could take it or leave it. Yeah. And these guys are doing it and then saying, well, to, to all these artists are saying, well, we only have this much left, so we're going to split between you. So 30% goes to Spotify and remaining uh, like 60% of the remaining 70 or something like that, some ridiculous number goes to the labels. And then I think what it came, comes down to is the last 15% that's left of these revenues gets split up between all the tens of thousands of independent artists out there. Mm 
So when they say, well, we're paying 0.008 cents per stream, that's an average on everything, but that's not the reality of the 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 working musician who's just trying to run a, run a small business here. Sure, and they're getting screwed, and they got they're getting nothing out of the deal. Yeah, and um and honestly, even point oh oh eight, you know, Apple came out and says, well, we're going to pay more, and they 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 made some marginal difference of of you know another five thousandths of a percent. Yeah, and it's like no. That's not paying more because when you start to extrapolate the numbers of the biggest songs and the biggest song in the world is going to generate a billion views, well, it doesn't pay out enough money on a billion views to even to, to, to match anywhere close to what we used to get, uh, what, what artists and, and producers used to get uh, on selling the records. Mm -hmm. And if this is the new selling the record, then we have to treat it like sales. You know, radio is not allowed to do what streaming services are allowed to do. Radio has been mandated. Yeah, they they have to pay the pros x amount of cents per spin, and a lot of the stuff's estimated and done on averages, and that's all well and good. But the bottom line is, radio isn't allowed to just take their profit first and then pay out what's remaining. That's not capitalism. Yeah, that's some other shit. So, you know, people say, well, the capitalist system is, is well, the capitalist system requires some government intervention. Sure. Especially when you have like 95% of the people that are in an industry are getting screwed and the top five, actually the top half of one tenth of 1% are making all the fucking money. Yeah. Man, there's no. All because they deliver. They don't even make the fucking content. They just deliver it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no industry in the history of the world that survives on free. <laughs> I mean, I can't compete with free. I mean, it's great for consumers, of course, but it's terrible for everybody else. But it can be free for the consumer. That's the thing. It can be free for the consumer and should be free for the consumer. But that requires making the companies that deliver it to pay up for the content that they're delivering to these people because they're making right. all the money on our content. If everybody stopped making content tomorrow, They've got nothing. Yeah. So how is it that they don't have to pay for that, yet they can just collect all the money and make all the money and, and share it with their shareholders, but none of the musicians or, or the uh, songwriters or anybody else is getting anything but the tiniest little taste, if that. Yeah. And Spotify and all these companies, they don't have to worry about it half the time because they have millions and millions of dollars in advertising revenue. So, you know, they don't have to, they're like, oh, no, it's cool. We got our, you know, $20 million from Taco Bell and Coca-Cola and whoever. So uh, if you don't want to see the ads, you just pay us more money and we won't show you the ads to offset the cost that, <laughs> you know, and so they're, they're making money regardless, you know, and they don't really even, it's almost like, I love what the, that Roger Waters interview when he was talking about that. And he said, you know, it's, it's no longer a transaction between people who make music and and want to sell it to people and then people want to buy it it's become this weird transaction between silicon valley and you know car companies exactly and the funny thing is well it's not funny the you know the the, the advertising model is really not working anymore because it's so saturated i yeah. mean you can't you can't advertisements don't have value when they're, there's they're everywhere all the time. Yeah. They they their value reduces too, and so that's what Spotify complains about. Well, we can't survive on the advertising model. Well, 
then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why we allow them to listen, they're they're in business for one thing, to sell. They want to sell to Google, Yahoo, well, maybe not Yahoo anymore, but you know, they want to sell to one of the big players, Verizon, Comcast, any of them. And so what they figure is if we get big enough on the backs of the artists, we'll be able to sell it for billions of dollars more than it, it's ever going to really actually be worth. And then the new company takes it. How is anybody going to get paid then? Because they're looking at it and say, well, it's going to take us a long time to recover this money that we've invested in this based on the amount of money it brings in. And so it's not going to change once it's sold. Yeah. So here we are allowing this company to get bigger and bigger and bigger and allowing them to do it on the backs of, of our artists and our uh, singers and songwriters and our people. Uh, it's not even an American company. Also, that they can sell themselves for more money than they're worth to still not anybody get paid. Yeah. <laughs> so I just don't understand why we as a country are allowing this. I mean, I do. I'm very uh, aware of politics and what's going on and, and why Congress does fucking nothing these days. <laughs> but really, if we don't, if, if we do not have laws that Congress says, listen, you cannot operate like this. Yeah. This is how you're going to, you're going to have to pay at a bare minimum this amount of money to artists when you stream their stuff. Uh, until that happens, these companies are not going to start paying more. Yeah, yeah, and and I, you know, you mentioned Apple agreeing to, you know, they're oh, we're going to pay more than Spotify, and still waiting on that to happen. Uh, <laughs> well, again, they, when they released the numbers of what more means, it was like five thousandths of a percent. It was really, it was ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just they're toying with the margins just to be able to say we're paying more. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny now. I don't know about title. Title might be really paying more, yeah. but we'll see. The jury's out. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I find it really difficult. You know, when sitting around with friends, you know, over some drinks, you're sitting around thinking, okay, well, then what's the solution? Sure. You know, what's the what's the solution to the music problem? And part of me thinks, well, you know, if you look at the Taylor Swift record, for example, like you said, it's the only platinum record, and she refused to put it on Spotify. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, that that was a smart move on her part because it forces the sales. Adele did the same thing. She wanted to sell the CD. If you can sell the product, you can make money. Yeah. Like as a band, if you sell CDs, you can make money. The enticement from the streaming is for the, the, the promotional value of it. Yeah. And I buy the argument. But when you really look at it, you got to wonder, man, maybe, it's, maybe it really is better. Maybe the exposure is useless. And you should, maybe these bands yeah. really should say, no, we're not going to be streaming this shit. We'll sell it online directly on Bandcamp or whatever. There's a number of options for that. It just doesn't seem to me like it's beneficial to put your stuff on streaming if you're not going to make any money and it's not really blowing anybody up to the point that they can anyway. Yeah. And see, I always liked, so I've, I've been a fan of Pandora since it was the Music Genome Project back in the day. Mm. <laughs> and... uh I always liked the idea that originally their original goal before they, you know, basically just became another streaming service was to help people discover new music. Right. And I feel like that's a good thing, you know, like, hey, oh, you, you like Ben Harper? Okay, we'll check out this Amos Lee record. Oh, we'll check out this, you know what I mean? Like, and so they'd help you find things. And so I think if Spotify did a better job or any of these streaming services did a better job at encouraging like don't just come here and listen to your same playlist over and over like actually try to find new stuff then maybe the whole argument of like exposure would be good 
But I feel like there's got to be something that's keeping, you know, oh, look, I see that you listen to Jay-Z. Here's Beyonce. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with that. I, <laughs> I mean, mean, the thing I do like about Pandora, uh, my girl likes to li- listen to Pandora and uh, that's her thing because she puts on the radio station that she, she has huge list of radio stations. She'll put on a radio station and, and stuff within that kind of vibe gets played. And so if you're in a certain mood, that works really well. Yeah. The thing that I would say about that though is like, there's like a whole host of songs that, that are played in the rotation around here uh, when she's playing Pandora at my house. Um, and I can't tell you what half of them are because yeah. it's rare for me actually to go find out, go and look on look the on thing. The screen. And even yeah. if I do go and look on the screen, half the time I forget because all I'm seeing is a name and a picture. And so there's nothing for me to really grasp hold of or buy into. Like if, if a Lady Gaga song was being played for the first time and then I, I was seeing a video of Lady Gaga, it would be hard to forget that. You know what I mean? Sure. But it's really easy to forget just a name. And an album cover. And so I don't know... That may be just me. Um, when I say I don't know, I literally don't know. Like whether whether other people uh, uh, have similar experiences as far as that's concerned. No. So, but just the same, they still should be paying the people. Yeah. Okay. So you're exposing someone. That's fantastic. But that doesn't mean that you get to stream their shit for free. Sure. I mean that's just bullshit. Yeah. Well, and I, I think there, I, one of the things, you know, this is just a bar conversation, you know, with some friends, somebody brought up, uh, they're like, well, why don't, why don't they do it like Netflix? And I think what he was meaning was, you know, Netflix has their originals, sure, whatever. Um, I mean, that would, I guess, be the equivalent of like a streaming service being their own label, so to speak. Um, you know, but yeah. what I guess he's, what he's talking about is, you know, when a record releases, it's like, hey, check it out on Spotify, release today. And it's like, why don't why don't they wait? You know what I mean? In Netflix, it makes you wait. You got to wait a year or more for Breaking Bad to come up there or something. You know what I mean? And uh, they don't. They've already put it up there after they've won their Emmy and won their. You know what I mean? Like they've already gone through the the trials of television, and you know, then it gets on Netflix later when it's already sort of you know. But I guess it's a little different though because in the movie industry. They make, especially in the movie industry, they make all their money on opening weekend. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they're not even really concerned about, you know, Blockbuster and all those places are gone. So <laughs> they're not worried about rentals so much. They make a lot of money on the rentals. I mean, uh, and on this, on and on, I'm sure they make good money on the, they make a lot of money on the, on everything. But the thing is a movie and, uh, okay, well, movies are different, but television shows are different in that. Once I've bought into season one, I'm I'm on usually until the end of it, if that's sure. five years or ten years. And so, you know, it has a lot of staying power. Artists, I don't know, you fall off a uh, you fall off an artist a lot quicker. And 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 artists a lot of times don't put out material every year. I mean, that's yeah. why I recommend to artists that Okay, you want to record an album, record an album. That's fair enough. But don't put it out in the, as an album. Put it out as three EPs. Because you gotta give your you gotta be constantly putting stuff out so that you keep people on the hook for the next thing that's coming out. Sure. Um, and so that's how the you know, that's how seasons work in television. And the thing is, you know, with artists, it's like, well, I don't really know when you're going to come out with another album. It could be three years from now, yeah. you know, and, and in the seventies, Led Zeppelin was putting out 
the Stones, all those bands were putting out an album every year. Yeah. And, uh, and they were good. They I, weren't just like, they were good. Yeah. And I think people need to go back to that. You got to constantly putting, be putting out work. It's okay that people have gone to listening to singles, but if people are going to go to listening singles, don't put out 10 songs, put out three at a time. They'll glom onto one song. And if you get fans, each time you put out three, they'll glom onto another one or three songs. Sure. You know, and, and, uh, and you keep them on the hook that way. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because like TV, I mean, TV is huge right now. You know, it's maybe, and honestly, the quality is great. I mean, there's so many great shows out now. You know, I can't remember a time when I, there was this much available, you know, to, to watch. You know, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and Netflix has their own, you know, originals that are mostly pretty decent. And, you know, yeah. and so I, I, I try to look at that and say, okay, how can we get to that place in the music industry where where people are binging on music the way that they binge on a Netflix show you know like is there any solution to getting people that excited and expectant for you know new artists and maybe it's that you know there are 20 million songs on Spotify but there's only you know a couple thousand titles on Netflix <laughs> well the problem is that if you go to sit down to watch Breaking Bad you're sitting down and it's and and you've shut down the lights and you've shut everything down and that's what you're doing. That's the only thing that you're doing. You're watching that show. And I agree with you. Television right now is way better than than movies. It's a better medium. Period. And now that we put now that the companies, uh, the studios, put a lot more money into the shows, they're they're of much higher quality. Yeah. Um, but if you really want to get to know a character, you want to get to know them over time, not in a two hour movie. Yeah. But as far as um, Music's concerned, music has become background noise. People don't listen to music the way they did when I was a kid, which sure. is you got your record and you sat down, you put the record on, you sat in front of the speakers and you read the line yeah, you notes. you just stare into a speaker. Yeah, yeah. And, you, <laughs> and then you wanted to learn the lyrics and you wanted to sing the lyrics and wanted to know that album inside and out because that's what you were going to listen to for the next month, two months, until you had enough money to buy another album by somebody else or you were done with it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then came the Walkman and you, we used that to escape and to get the whole world outside we'd be in our music but now the music's just in the background loudness didn't help with that I, I'm, yeah. actually loudness did help with that because now you could turn the music way down and it would still cut through everything forget yeah forget so about it <laughs> our own industry kind of we we kind of cut ourselves off at the nuts with that move yeah um because we really literally change the listening habits of people and once you change habits it's very difficult to change them back. In sure. fact, if you don't change them back, something else happens to change them to something else. Sure. So the listening habits are such that they're not it's not interactive. And that has contributed to music having no value. Uh and and so um and that has also contributed to, you know, like I was talking about not even going to check out who I'm listening to at the time. I just know that if I'm on that radio station on Pandora, I'm going to hear that song in the rotation and I'm good with that. Yeah. Along with a bunch of others. Yeah. So it is a, diff it is a little difficult to compare the two because of that. Yeah. It's strange that the hobby has changed so much of listening to music. Because I'm like you, when I when I first got into music, I, I'd sit there and just stare at a speaker for three hours and put on, you know, Miles Davis or whoever and just, you know, just drone out. And I'd be amazed, I'd be listening and I didn't know anything about any, you know, I didn't even know, what's he playing? Is that some sort of a horn or, you know what I mean? I didn't know anything. Yeah, just and, the music and I, moved you, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I was so curious, and I would listen, and I'm like, was that is that reverb, or do I, did I just hear footsteps, or was that you know somebody walking in my like I was really into it, and you know, and and it's kind of. I have a little hope for the vinyl thing, the vinyl resurgence, you know, it's coming back and, you know, it's funny because a lot of people are saying like, oh, vinyl, it sounds so good. And, you know, usually what that means is, you know, you're actually just sitting and listening on a decent system and enjoying it like a record. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, you're listening to it top to bottom. It's not as crushed because it can't be, you know, you can't, they won't cut, the record won't cut right. Yeah, right. And, you know, you're listening through speakers, not your little iPod earbuds. Yep. Um, you know, and so they have this different experience and and they're getting into like, oh, my friend just got this album on vinyl. That's really cool. Come over and we'll listen to it and smoke weed, you know, <laughs> like, and, and it's, that's like, that's what we used to do. Yeah, right. And so I think in some way that whole idea of like vinyl coming back is a cool thing, I think is great because if nothing else you know, love it or hate it, it encourages that sort of hobby, you know, like music is fun to experience mentality. And and I think that's great. But when it comes to digital audio, it's almost like, you know, if I were to email you a picture of the Mona Lisa, that's worth zero dollars and zero cents. But that's one of the most valuable paintings in the history of time. Right. And, you know, if you see it, it's, you know, it's pretty, it's not a very big painting. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's guarded by a foot of glass and (laughs) two armed, you know, armed, you know, guys. And it's like, but but it's still different when you go and you see it and you experience it. You're like, wow, that's that's the real thing. Right. But if I email you a picture, you're like, it could be the most beautiful, like perfect picture capturing all the detail of that painting. But it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? And yeah. And there's something interesting about how, what happens when when things are synthesized into digital and they're put into just a file. I don't know. Maybe there's nothing to that. Maybe I'm reading too far into that. No, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, the thing is, though, how big is that market really going to get? Um, you know, I'm dealing with this same thing on my audiobooks, and that is I made these things, and I spent a lot of time to make these things really high quality. You know, they don't, they're, they're recorded well, they're balanced, they're mixed, they're, there's like the, everything's timed to the and and there's music there's lots and lots of music that i put in there so yeah. so now i put it on audible and i just came to find out that audible the acx which does which puts the audiobook both on audible and on itunes they bring the quality down to 22 a sample rate of 22k Ooh. So that means the top frequency, as you know, is 11K on yeah. that product. <laughs> That's worse than cassettes. Yeah. Okay. The top frequency on a cassette, I think, is 15 or 16K. 11K is atrocious. Yeah. Now, it sounds atrocious on a single voice, but on music, it kills it. Yeah. It literally kills Because then we're talking about, about a it. steep anti-aliasing filter that, oh. yeah, just- so bad. Cuts it. And so I'm so dis- disheartened by this because it's like, I want people to listen to the audiobook and get the experience, but I recognize that I can't just pull it off of Audible and then put it on CD and sell it as a CD only because I am cutting off a very large percentage of people who really aren't going to buy a CD. Yeah. They're going to want it. They're listening to it for the content. They probably don't give a shit about what it sounds like. They don't realize that maybe it would be better if it was higher quality. Yeah. Uh, they care more about the convenience than, than anything else. I understand all of that. And so here I have this product that I have to dumb down to this horrible level um, because 
I'm almost forced to, to reach the maximum number of people, even though I feel I'm killing the, the, the real emotional impact of the product by doing that. Yeah. And did I read on your Facebook that one of those two places made it mono, made your audiobook mono? Audible sells it mono. You have to actually select enhanced CD. They call oh, it enhanced God. CD, which is also <laughs> really fucking bullshit. Yeah. It's, it's not anywhere close to a CD. CD is, uh, we have, there's a definition for CD quality. For CD standard, And that's yeah. 44.1 16-bit. 44.1 sample rate, 16-bit. Well, they're not even anywhere close to that. Yeah. yeah. So to call it CD... Enhanced CD is just, it's its really, it's kind of outrageous. Yeah, yeah. And that would be, I mean, on a CD, it would be a wave file. I mean, it wouldn't be. Exactly. <laughs> it's not even. Re- and the real bitch is they have me send it into them. Like in, the instructions are, it has to be sent in as 192, uh, um, 192 MP3s. Wow. And then they bring it down to a, even to lower. a 20, to lower from there. I'm like, why? I called them and I, I, I'm like, why? I mean, if you're going to dumb it down this far, why not take it from the wave? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I couldn't get any answer because I'm sure I, I'm, just, I'm sure when you first heard, you know saw the requirements, you were like, okay, I can deal with the 192 MP3. Yeah, but then there, yeah, I could deal it, with 192. You know, it, yeah, because you know, I feel like MP3 encoding and stuff has gotten a little better over the years. You know, when it first came out, it's you know, but it doesn't kill it. Yeah, it's not great. It's better CD, better wave, but it's it doesn't sure, kill. It's it. better than you know a streaming quality or or like satellite radio. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, you yeah. Know. I, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that uh, now, did that happen on your first audiobook? Yeah, but I didn't quite realize until recently just how bad it was because I went and I, I mean, I did check it on on the Daily Adventures, but uh, it didn't really matter. I wasn't going to do it on CD, so it was what it was. But then on this one, when I listened to it. Uh, I heard the mono version. I'm like, why is this mono? Why is the sample mono? Yeah, and and they wouldn't change. They won't change the sample from mono. Like it ha- we have to make it so that the maximum amount of people can can hear it. And I'm like, what? From where? Bangladesh? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I realize that we have some bandwidth issues in areas of this country, but really, I mean, we download movies now. We stream yeah, we can movies. stream. Yeah, we can stream 4K movies on Netflix instantly. You can't tell me that we can't stream or we can't. You have a problem with bandwidth on full size audiobooks, even though they're 11 hours. It's still just audio. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of those things I in the back of my mind, I keep telling myself, okay, streaming does have one big upside to CD. And that is the potential for the quality of music to change, because if we have the CD standard, you know, and all of, you know, in the audio industry, we're all thinking, like, why do we still have 16 bit as a standard? You know, that's one of those things where, like, why is, you know, and it's because of CDs. Right. And, you know, and so. My brain, I keep saying, okay, please, one day, one day, streaming gives us that lift where we no longer need that restriction, where we could stream, you know, 96K, 32-bit files, you know, because obviously, you know, data is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and, you know, you can stream a 4K movie on Netflix in seconds, you know, and it'll it'll load as it plays. Yeah. And, and you know, that we're talking about a a huge file, huge gigabytes and gigabytes of space for a 4K movie. I mean, massive. Right. And even a 96K 
32-bit WAV file for a whole song might be 100 megabytes. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's crazy. So my brain says at least streaming has that behind it, that one day it might lift us out of this sort of like... You know, we're using a format. Yes, we're using a format created in the restriction in a- is, is, is made by the douchebags who want to make as much money as fucking possible. Yeah, and they I mean, want to conserve space. Because you can't make an argument for why you need to bring it down to that size uh, if it's not to save on your bandwidth. Yeah. And I just don't understand how it is that Netflix can uh, stream that kind of bandwidth and, 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 Amazon slash Audible cannot. They can. They choose not to because they don't think it's important. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, like YouTube. You can sign up for a YouTube account. You could sign up for 10 YouTube accounts today and you can upload, you know, two gigabyte movies. And <laughs> it's crazy and it's free. You don't have to pay a dime for your space. And it's like, yeah. so it can and, be done. <laughs> and at 192K um, uh, MP3, it's... um. Uh, it's only it's under two gig. Yeah, the book's under two. So they don't, even if they don't want to do wave, I could like like you said, one eighty two is not that bad. Okay, fine, I can live with one ninety two. It's still it's under two gig. You can't tell me that that can't be streamed or that yeah. can't be downloaded easily by yeah. most people. And fine, you know. And this is what I told them. I'm like, if you really think that there's that many people out there that are still on dial up that you need to service. Yeah. Well, you have the already dumbed down version. Why why do you have to dumb down all of it? Yeah. They also yeah. put DRM on it, which, you know, I, I understand, but I don't <laughs> think people are going to be... Some people will trade the audiobook if there's no DRM, but really, if it really gains popularity, people will buy it. They're not going to... Audiobooks are a little different from records because audiobooks appeal to adults, uh, older adults and... Uh, so the demographic is more interested, is less interested in in having to deal with torrent sites and 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 viruses than they are just sure. paying the the twenty bucks or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I find so frustrating is that you know, like I said about Google having all this infinite space to you know, hey, you get two gigs for your email account and you can upload two gigs per YouTube video and all this stuff. You know, part of me wonders. Um, you know, okay, so like, well, like, like we've been saying, you know, it can be done. We know it can be done. So what's the what's the deal? I remembered uh, a friend of mine who works at Verizon, and he told me he's a musician, and I we were talking about this over some drinks, and he said, you know, I think the biggest reason why they haven't done it is because more people stream music on their phones than they do. Netflix movies, you know, because you have to sit there and watch it on a, you know, people stream on their uh, laptop or whatever when they're at home, but while they're running or working, I mean, people stream hundreds of songs, you know, they could stream a couple hundred songs in a day and, you know, all of a sudden their phone data goes up. But my sort of counter argument to that was, yeah, but just a couple years ago, I mean, five years ago, we were paying stupid premiums every month for not that much you know, data on our phones. And now everyone's moving to this sort of unlimited model because we want the content. And so, you know, I think soon enough, within probably five, 10 years, they'll all be unlimited. You know what I mean? Who's going to, who's going to pay, you know? They're not, I don't see them moving to an unlimited model. I mean, AT&T, when I signed up with AT&T, they gave me an unlimited for life on the data, mm. but then they started throttling me a few a uh, couple years back, and I started noticing if I use too much data, they just throttle me. Interesting. And I'm like, 
oh, okay. And then they kind of locked me into this price, which was more than if I just got, uh, you know, uh, a data plan that wasn't unlimited. So they locked me in. So uh, to the point where I'm looking at it, and I go, well, it doesn't really make any sense for me to stick with unlimited anymore. So they basically forced everybody off of it by interesting by being douchebags. And, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be a class action suit against them for that. Uh, but it's typical. Uh, so I went to Verizon and now, you know, Verizon's cool because I can raise and lower my my data at least. But you do make a good argument. I do agree with you that, I, I mean, I'm sure that's why one of the arguments for keeping the music streaming down. But I would also argue that there's Wi-Fi everywhere and, yeah. you know, cities are starting to to wire up to to put Wi-Fi as a citywide thing. And yeah. that's going to start happening more and more. And um, so, I mean, I just don't find that I'm out of range of a Wi-Fi network all that much, you know? So I don't know. Look, again, it's about choice. If yeah. I really am worried about data, then I should be able to set it to, like, give me a data streaming tier and a home streaming tier. Sure. You know, one's more higher quality and I'm on the Wi-Fi and it's cool. Yeah, and I you think Title, I think Title does something like that. Where you pay a little more, and you can get the better quality. Yeah, Title, I have the CD quality on Title, and let me tell you, it made for referencing, it makes a big difference. Yeah, like I had been using Spotify, and and I'm just like, I don't know why, I I can't pay these guys money anymore. Yeah. And so, uh, after you know, as I was writing the book, I'm like, this why I can't write this about these fuckers, and then and give them money. Yeah. So I switched to Title recently, and um referencing in my room is a whole new thing now because like it's so sounds so much better it's like yeah it's ridiculous i don't even know why i bothered trying to reference on mp3s it's just don't do that if you are working at learning at a mix or whatever you have to reference cd quality at the very least yeah and it's frustrating to me i remember when when the title you know when they signed the uh sort of you know, final papers and when they had that sort of press release event, uh, you know, there were so many comments, people just, you know, being like, oh, look at all these rich people and they're, you know what I mean? And it's like, no, you don't understand the the thing with title is that, hey, this is controlled by musicians and the people, the content creators, albeit very wealthy musicians like Jay-Z. Well, we shall see. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I think that it, the the jury's think, out. Yeah, I think the heart behind it is good, though. You know, the idea that, like, okay, let's say you come out with an audiobook. You should be able to sell it for whatever you want. Like, that, that is an actual, like, capitalist system. Like, you should be able to say, ah, oh, this audiobook's worth 50 bucks. And, you know, instead they're like, oh, nope, $19.99 or, you know, whatever. And, hey, I just made an album of 10 songs. I should be able to sell it for... For $5 or for $20, and Apple says, nope, $9.99, or nope. Yeah, I agree with you. It's total bullshit. They do that with my audiobooks, and I'm like, they're, they're like, well, we tell you what you sell it for. Yeah. Because of, and they then they claim that antitrust laws as their reason, and I'm like, really? <laughs> Are you fucking it. serious? That's like the exact opposite. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to sell it for 10 bucks. Nope, you can't sell it for 10 bucks. 25 bucks. I'm like, well, that's a ridiculous price. Mm. Uh, you know, $10 is reasonable. I, I want as many people to listen to it as possible. Sure. I don't want the price of it to be the reason why someone doesn't buy it. Yeah. So I don't care. I, I just want to sell it for 10 bucks. Nope. You have to sell it for, we, we tell you what you sell it for. Apple decides what they sell it for. Yeah. That, that has to change. That's not a free market. Yeah. Apple kind of started that wave, you know, of like, 
letting the company define the price of the CD rather than the artist or the label or whoever, you know, by Apple saying, up oh, every song is $1. You know what I mean? And that sort of defined, and all these other tech companies said, hey, we can do that too. We can define what a stream is worth. Hey, we can define what a, you know what I mean? We can define what an audiobook is worth. Right. And, you know, and that's, it shouldn't, to me, the power should be in the hands of, you know, if you want to sell your album for $10 million, you should be able to do it. No one's going to buy it, but, you know, if you're, you know, if you... Yeah, but I only need to sell one. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, if you're if you're an artist, like, okay, like, if you, I'm sure you have heard about that. Uh, there's like a Wu-Tang Clan album that's like, you know, some like... yeah golden crusted i don't know what <laughs> right. you know uh, and it's like it's treating it like a piece of art rather yes. than as a, and it's like yeah. but it they should be able to do that like they should be able to release one copy of an album well they can and they would argue and 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 i am selling the daily adventures of mixer man for 10 bucks on my website and it's of higher quality than what they can get on audible mm. but i i audible gives me a lower percentage uh, of of the of this of their sales before that non-exclusive agreement and um and the problem is that when it comes to distribution of audiobooks itunes and 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 Amazon have it locked up. Yeah. And there's like try you could yes, I can sell it. I do not have to sell it on their platforms. But that's where all that's the where people customers go. who buy audiobooks are. Yeah. So that makes it so that I have no choice. Yeah. Well, isn't that what a monopoly is? Yeah. It I mean it's like in this case a duopoly? Yeah. It's not a free market at that point. It really is like a monopoly or a you know, where where they just do whatever they want, and I mean, we don't have a choice. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's all this talk about Amazon and its growth, and if you really look at it, there there's there have been a lot a lot of companies that have basically been forced to sell on Amazon at Amazon prices, yeah. and they are cutting off their own sales by doing that. And so what happens is they they see massive growth on the amazon side of things but they are taking they are seeing uh contraction on the overall because basically they're just being forced to sell their product for less than the market value because amazon has has so much control over over internet sales i i feel like that's the growing trend though on the internet it's like you look at somewhere like Facebook, like most people, let's assume that, you know, people get a lot of their news on Facebook. The, these companies want, you know, to remove competitors just by nature of the way they're designed. You know what I mean? Like they want, like, they don't want you to go to YouTube and look up mu news videos. They want you to go to Facebook that has links to YouTube. You know what I mean? Like they, they want to make, okay, here's your Facebook site. Here's, you know, Spotify. So you get all your music here. You get all of your news and updates here. You get, you know, they want to give you four little boxes of what you, where you get content. And that's really dangerous because then those four boxes become little portals to so many other websites that get no credit and Facebook gets all the credit and they get all the money and they get all, you know what I mean? Because they're the ones doing all the linking and the sponsorships and all that stuff. And so I guess what I'm saying is that's a dangerous path. You know, when these companies try to become this huge, huge centralized, like, look how powerful I am. I control Aggregator, all of this. Yes, really. they're yes, aggregators, exactly. Yeah. It's a dangerous path and, and it moves that, I mean, 
Amazon used to be, you know, dead broke, you know, when they started. And then now they're, I mean, they're another corporate monster. <laughs> I mean, and they've come into this like, oh, you want to go buy camera lenses? Amazon. Oh, you want to go buy books? Amazon. Oh, you want to go buy a shirt for your kid? <laughs> Amazon. You know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's like, I, it's become this m- massive thing. I was in Mississippi visiting my girl uh, with me and my girl went down there for a few days and I brought a hard drive with me and I forgot the 800 cable and I went to three stores, Best Buy, Target and uh, Office Depot and none of them carried 800 cables. And they all said the same thing. Eh, they're cheaper online. <laughs> It's like, yeah. And then the guy at Best Buy is like, yeah, we get about three requests a, a month for it. I'm like, really? Three requests a month isn't enough to keep a few of them like somewhere? <laughs> even, in a, even an overpriced, like a monster cable, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, you can rape me right now. Why, why are you even going to do that? <laughs> They've got HDMI cables and those are way cheaper online. And I, I, and I could have bought it from Amazon. So now Amazon, okay, great. It's cheaper on Amazon. There's no doubt. If I had bought it at Best Buy, it would have been a lot more expensive if they have if they even carried it. But if I buy it on Amazon and I need it today, which is why I went to the Best Buy, yeah. or I need it tomorrow, well, now I got to pay, what, $10, $20 in shipping. Now it still would have been cheaper for me to get it at the brick and mortar. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so something I've been thinking about uh, recently that uh, I'd love to get your opinion on. So I had a record I was working on recently, and it was one of those situations where, you know, I sent out the mix to the band, and uh, they said, like, you know, I don't know if that's quite the vibe we were looking for. You know, they sent me some reference tracks, but then they kind of changed their mind. They're like, well, more like this. And I was like, okay. So we did some mix changes and things like that, and and it came out fine. But it started me thinking about the, the whole idea of, like, vibes of records, you know, and take a band like Alabama Shakes, right, where they have this sort of like retro, garagey, you know, spring reverbs, distorted vocals thing. And that's all great. And that's cool. And it's a really cool vibe. It works for them really well. It works for her voice really well. Um, But it started me thinking, you know, when, when thinking about a vibe for a record, when bands are sort of getting in that you know, mentality. And, you know, if a band says like, yeah, we're really trying to go for like, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin or something like that. I started thinking about, let's follow that train and go back to Led Zeppelin. You know, was Led Zeppelin thinking, hey, let's make a record with the Beatles vibe? You know what I mean? Like, it it, kind of makes me wonder, like, were they actually trying to create a vibe like we often say now, or are they just trying to get a really good recording? You know, and and so, and I bring that up because... The client, his his words were, this sounds like a really, the first mix I sent him, he's like, this sounds like a really great mix, but it doesn't sound like the right vibe, you know? And so it was like, okay, so it's a good mix, mm-hmm. but it's not quite right. And so it sort of made me think, well, part of that is the recording process, but still, well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that when it comes to like creating a vibe versus like just trying to get a good recording? Because that's like very different mindsets there. A number of things. I find that usually when people talk to me about um, references, uh, especially when they're references that don't really make any sense at all with their music, (laughs) that it's a feeling that they're talking about. There's a feeling that that music brings to them that they want to get out of of their music. That feeling, uh, by the time you get to the mix stage, you would hope that they recorded it with the intent of getting to that feeling. So sure. it's a bit of a wank if you're trying to create it after the fact. Yeah. 
because those your best control over deriving those kinds uh, over the deriving the feeling of a record is the feel of it. Yeah, you know, and and if it's a sonic feeling, you know, that can be done in in advance also. No. but really, like to me, if someone's like they're interested in the feeling of a Led Zeppelin record, I don't take that literal to mean we're going to now go and try and copycat a Led Zeppelin record. Sure. Uh, I take it to, we're going to make a modern sounding record that that evokes the feeling that a Led, that those early Led Zeppelin records did. Sure. And that's, that's a high bar, I will say, uh, but at least that's something that can be possibly accomplished. Um, when you look at uh, the the whole thing with um, oh, uh, Farrell and um, oh uh, Robin and Robin Thicke on um, uh, uh, blurred lines, I know exactly. I wasn't there, but I know exactly what happened in the studio. They were they probably listened to that song and said, "Yeah, man, I love the fucking vibe and the feeling of this song." Sure, I seriously doubt they set out to go and steal anything from that. But they did go in and try and create that feeling. Yeah. Now, and so the layperson, and you and I have both read all of these arguments on on the internet. The right. layperson goes and says, "Well, oh my god!" Especially the fan who who grew up with Marvin Gaye's uh, uh, original song uh, goes, "Oh my god, that's exactly the same." Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. It's not. It's actually when it comes to like copyright law. They the chord progression is different, and you can't even copyright the chord progression. Yeah, it, the melody is different, and the lyric is different. Sure, and so sorry, but yeah, I as a producer can pinch a vibe. I can pinch a feel. Sure, you don't get to copyright feel because a it's ubiquitous. It's you, you, there's no real way. Like it's a hit or miss thing. Like I, it's subjective. I could play you something that I think I fucking nailed the feel, and you could say, "Yeah, you didn't nail it." Yeah. So, but I could maybe get seventy percent of the people to feel that I really nailed it, and then is so we can't copyright feel. We can't copyright the way a record makes us feel, and that's you know to me that's all fair game uh, to 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 pinch that. Uh, what what isn't fair game is to pinch it to the point where you go. Wow, that sounds like this record. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I actually shouldn't say that because uh, uh, I mean, you could say that about Blurred Lines, but Blurred Lines doesn't actually sound like uh, uh, Marvin Gaye's record. There's way more low end. It's complete. It's a modern production. Uh, the chord progressions are different. Um, the song is entirely different. So, but it does harken back the feeling that that original song that original marvin gay song did sure so that's anyway that's where I, I i think people are going now if 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 a band sends me a song to mix first of all i have a whole series of questions before i even open the thing up and one of them is are you giving me a rough mix that kind of gives me an idea of of what's in your head sure or is the rough mix like just basically a faders up faders, mix of what yeah. you have, right. and and now I'm supposed to interpret something else out of it. Sure, and uh, sometimes I can interpret a lot out of it, but a lot of times these days people don't have the skills to 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 really lay down um, lay down a recording in a way that really 
tells a story to to someone else who's also in the music business, who's a mixer, who's been doing many, many records. Sure. And and those that skill set is being lost because of many reasons, because we've lost mentorship opportunities. People are just kind of just trying to figure it out on their own. Right. They're in their houses. They don't have ideal situations. So it's all well and good to say you want to cut a record that's as great as Led Zeppelin, but guess what? The Led Zeppelin record was cut in a matter of days in amazing spaces with yeah. amazing engineers and an amazing band. Yeah. So without those things, forget it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so when it comes to mixing, uh, you know, what if you get this rough mix that's sort of uh, bland, you know, faders up, pans, whatever, what's the first thing that you would try to do? You know, when you're sitting there saying, okay, they want this, it's currently just faders up, you know, uh, what are the types of things that you do to help them get to that vision? You know, is it just a matter of trial and error for you? Or is there a lot of conversation back and forth, a lot of reference reference tracks, a lot of, you know, just sort of experimentation? Do you try to grab something and, you know, sort of hold on to it? Uh it's mostly managing expectations. Look, if you're gonna as if you're gonna come to me as an artist and you're giving me something and you say, uh, uh, and you're gonna tell me in words the feeling that you want to evoke and not in music, well, then that's up open to a lot of interpretation on my part. Right. And no matter how skilled I am uh, of thirty years of determining what words mean what in this business, I still will not necessarily nail it the way you think you're, is, it's obviously supposed to be. Sure. So m my thing is, listen, I'm listening to this. Uh, the drums are like this. The guitars, I have no idea what distortion you've been listening to these guitars on because you sent me direct, you know. Uh, <laughs> DI tracks. DI yeah. tracks on the guitars. It leaves a very wide uh, path for me to choose. Yeah. And so I'm basically going to say, I'm going to mix this. I'm going to deliver you a mix and it may be complete surprise to you. Yeah. And so as a consequence, I try actually to avoid those gigs. If they're down and they're going to take what they get, okay, fine. You're going to take what you get, fine. I'll do the mix. Uh, pay me in advance. I'll deliver you a mix. Sure. I'm going to deliver you the best mix I can. It's going to be how I think this thing is best, but I'm not going to guarantee that it's anything like what you hear in your head because you've given me nothing sure. to indicate that. I don't know you. You're 5,000 miles away from me. Yeah. And and I would actually have to go through three songs with you before I really can understand where your head is at as far as music right. is Right, because all you really have to go on is just... You have a bunch of musical performances, and they happen to all be playing at the same time. <laughs> well, it used to be when I got to L.A., when I brought up tracks, it was really obvious where everybody wanted to go with right. it because everybody recorded it that way. Right. And so you brought it up, and you're like, oh, yeah, I see where you guys are going with this. And you could even, like, I'd bring up other stuff. I'd be like, whoa. Oh, they got a little lost over here. Right. They, you know, this percussion, this doesn't work with this. This doesn't work with... Okay, fine. We're, we're, let's break this down to what's working. All right. I see where they're lost their way. Right. And then and nine times out of 10, if not more, I'd nail it. Like They'd be like, yeah, man, that's exactly what... Well, I was no genius. I'm sorry. It was really kind of obvious. You're just listening. Now, yeah. I'm just listening to what they did. They're telling right. me in their tracks what they want. Right. It's like if I bring up a track and the first thing I bring up is boom, 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 the kick drum. Oh, 
What? I'm going to bury the kick drum? No, yeah. it's four to the floor. <laughs> we're going to put the kick drum nice and loud. This is a dance track. We know where we're sure. going with this, right? Yeah. There's indicators. Those indicators always, that, that, that particular kind of indicator will always exist. But if you don't give me any kind of, there's a thousand ways to distort a guitar. Sure. And if you don't give me any kind of indication as to what you are hearing, then I'm basically going to have to make something up. Right. Yeah. And it'll be great. It will be great. But it may not be what you think is great. Right. Yeah. So I'm always curious, what, what's something that you, that you struggle with mixing-wise? You know, everyone, I, everyone's got their struggles. My struggle, for example, I always have trouble with, you know, dealing with the sort of the balance of like what, what to prioritize. That's always what I struggle with. You know, like, do I, get, do I want my drums to be sort of like really, really big? Or do I want to prioritize more like, say, the lead singer and the guitar and make sure those are loud and proud and the drums are a little maybe darker and they sit a little bit more in the back? You know, because naturally, uh, I play drums and guitar. Guitar is my main instrument. But, you know, if you, we all know that if you go down the path of, hey, let's make everything sound amazing, it doesn't work. You know, like it, it doesn't work to just sit there and solo up a bunch of tracks and try to make them all sound as good as possible. It'd be nice if that worked, but it doesn't. So what's, what's something that you struggle with when, when mixing? Mm, my, my struggle point is always the low end where I want that low end. But that's, that's not because I struggle with it personally. I just think that that's the biggest struggle point because that requires the most attention to detail. Sure. Like to really get that low end to sit and sing where it's not consuming your mix takes time. On every mix, even yeah. to this day, it's not something that you just, oh, I'm good at this now and I can do it now in, I can get the low end right in 10 minutes as opposed to two hours. Right. No, I'm where I'm like struggling with the low end until the very moment that I, that I print the thing. Right. Um, until I, and then I let it go. And then when I lis listen to it later, I can listen to it without hearing that aspect of it. I can just hear the record. Right. But to me, that's the part of, of, of a mix that takes the most attention because it is not easy to mix with a robust low end, particularly when you're dealing with dense tracks. Right. If they're wide open, like Ben Harper, the, getting the low end like that on Ben Harper is rather easy, actually. Right. But because they're so wide open, but there's not a lot of competition. Um, but uh, if it's a dense mix, well, then it becomes a, a, a bit... A, a, a bit of a trick to get that low end really robust uh, without consuming the mix. Sure, because a big, you know, big bass or a big kick, either one can can just swallow the whole. I mean, the bottom of guitars, the bottom of pianos, exactly. the bottom, you know. Yeah. And sometimes, like with pianos, you know, you're you're a pianist, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that frustrates me about piano is, you know, I, there's I love recording a real piano. You know, it's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun to experiment with that. And it's hard to do now. Not a lot of people have a piano worth recording, yeah. uh, you know. And so when you get there and you re record it up and you spend all this time, you get the mics right, you check your face, it's great. Your stereo image isn't too wide or too narrow. And then in the mix, you often have to make it so small, you know, to compete with the rest of this track you you almost would have been better off using a sample in a way you know and it's frustrating because sometimes well not necessarily i mean listen when i was cutting rock albums and we were going to put down a piano i almost always recorded it mono i didn't want some big large stereo piano on top of these guitars you can't compete 
me, but you know, when I recorded BJ's album, BJ Lederman's album, just recently, we, we're just wrapping that up. I'm, I'm, I'm producing this project. He's a piano player. So, that's what yeah, it is. So that's a big focus. So that's going to be a big stereo piano, and I got to make the guitars work with the piano. Sure. But if it was rock and it's good and it was guitar oriented, it was a mono piano. I'd stick a fifty-seven in the sound hole, and <laughs> and and then crush it with a with you know with with a ridiculously expensive limiter like a Fairchild or something. Sure. And uh, or whatever was available in LA two A even. So yeah, pianos take up a lot of space. So do B threes and and so you got to make decisions based on what's important for the song, what's important for the artist. Right. You know? Yeah. So I feel like. You know, people that really like doing this, really that, you know, they have to do it. You know, I, uh, I'm, I feel like I'm one of those people. I feel like you're one of those people that like, we love to do it. You don't really know anything else, <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, I, I mean, I feel like people like that are always sort of in search of new things, new techniques. So I'm curious what, what new, is there any new techniques or new, uh, new things that you've learned in the last six months or so, uh, that, you know, you, you've never really done before things that you've tried new stuff. In some ways, there's always new things that I haven't tried, but in other ways, there's nothing new that I haven't tried because, <laughs> because when you really start to break things down to its music down to its core, you know, there's, there's everything that you record has a function in the recording. Right. The the vocal has the function of delivering the melody and the lyric to the listener, and we want to give that as much focus. That's why we put it in the center 99, 999 times out of a thousand. Right. Um, if not more. And uh, 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 the percussion is is to offer uh, internal rhythms. The rhythm section is to offer rhythm. Uh, there's harmonic instruments. Uh, like piano, which we use to fill in space. The bass has a function. And so uh, as long as what I'm recording has has a musical function, then it's pretty easy to equate how to record that thing or what it, what it is I'm looking for it to do. Where do I want it to fit? Where do I want it to fit in frequency wise with everything that I have? Where do I want it to fit in rhythmic wise with everything that I have? Is it making everything better? Sure. Is there a reason for this uh, part? Uh, and so that's the, uh, the, the, the magnifying glass or the prism that I, that I look at everything through. Um, whim is an enormous part of this business because we, we do a lot of things repetitively. Uh, we record the same drum kit with a kick, a snare, sure. three toms, maybe two toms, maybe it's four toms, whatever. It's still a fucking drum kit. There's right. symbols above it. We got to make the overheads. You know, you've recorded one drum kit. You're going to record it, record another thousand over the next 30 years. And they're sure. not going to really change all that much. Because of the repetitive nature of what we do, we, we often find ourselves wanting to um, make things a little more interesting. Sure. And so whim is a part of it. And things come into play. I'll try new things and I'll start to use those. But I don't really view any of it as new anymore. They maybe the tool is new, maybe the method is new, but if I want to distort and I use uh, Sound Toys Decapitator rather than plugging it into an amplifier, 
well, that's just the tool. I'm still adding distortion to it, and it's still a matter of determining whether I'm adding the distortion that I'm looking for or not. Right. To me, it's 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 the the differences between records. I don't even notice the recording aspects of it anymore because those are all the same. I just notice like the people and the and the and the dealing with people aspects of it, and the the little victories that go along with with all of that are are more. Uh, interesting to me, and uh, than than the actual process of the recording and all that. Hmm. That's all important to me. I'm not saying they're unimportant, and I put all that I can in them. It's just that they are what they are. When it comes down to it, the difference between records is 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 the combination, the organization of the music itself, and the people that are the artist. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure you would argue that it's more valuable to make a an interesting recording, even if it's not necessarily as good than a recording that's technically good, but lacks a vibe or lacks interest. I don't care about technically good recordings. All I care about is, is the song doing what it's supposed to do. I don't even know what a technically good recording is because if I want something to sound like shit and I succeed, that was a technically good recording, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The sound does not live in a vacuum. Sound operates sure. within the within the context of, of, the, of the music. And if I want to irritate you, then I might want to make sure it's nice and bright and the cymbals are louder than, than on other mixes. Or maybe I want the guitars to be a little bit rude. And and to cause you as a listener to kind of be a little agitated by the music. Right. That that's not what I would do on a Ben Harper song, where I want to kind of relax you and envelop you with the music. Sure. So, you know, we when we discuss sound, it really has to always be uh, discussed based on what it is I'm trying to achieve as a producer. Uh, from and pull out emotionally from you as a listener. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I guess that's the ultimate goal. I mean, it's for, for you, for the artist, for the songwriter, for all those people. I mean, it's like, we want reactions. We want people to, you know, if it's a dance song, we want people to dance. As simple as that, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. uh, if it's a rock song, we want people to headbang and, you know what I mean? Like, we want people to sing along, whatever. And, I mean, uh, I listen to people criticize mixes, not my own or uh, other people's mixes, and I'm like, you know, I don't know. Obviously, that's what they wanted it to sound like. Sure. I mean, they had they didn't have a gun to their head to put out the CD before they were ready. Right. We have to assume everything sounds the way they wanted it to sound. Or they wouldn't have. I mean, yeah, it's a committee, have. so maybe some people on there don't like it as much as others, but it's not for... Uh, I, I don't evaluate anything other than the product itself like is this song doing it for me or not that's why none of it really matters and and the and uh, the the sound just especially today it's really just about the song and and if you keep the sound so that it gets the song across or at least stays out of the way of the song then you're going to be okay right yeah so so tell me some more about uh about your new place in um in Asheville. Yeah, well, I've got my mix room here at the house, which is cool. I mean, I've had a mix room at my house now for going on six years now. And um, this is my second one in Asheville because it was a big move coming here. And I had to, I kind of took a temporary place. I had a really good room in that place. And now I'm I'm getting this one together. Uh I say get it together. I've mixed a bunch of things in here already, but you know, I could be moving things around. But for a year, you yeah. know, until I'm really, until I really feel like I've got the room exactly where I want it, and I know exactly what's happening in here. Right. Um, 
which just means there's less referencing and then there's less, you know, checking outside of here over time and, right. and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, Asheville is a really, really uh, awesome uh, music community. And there's a bunch of studios here, including Echo Mountain, which is a, which is a multi-complex room. Um, they've got uh, an API room and a uh, a Neve eighty sixty eight room in a church, an old church. Cool. The church room yeah. sounds amazing. I love that room. Uh, it's uh, for drums especially, and uh, and I love the API room too. It's a it's an amazing uh, overdub room, and I still get my mix work from wherever. That so that's sure for the last eight years. That's come from all over. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't have to be there with people that I mix for, although I do prefer it. I don't, it, it's not necessary. It's just not the way things are. Sure. And uh, when it comes to producing, I'm just trying really to get the word out that I'm here in Asheville and I have in Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> and uh, I have, I have, um, you know, I have a whole infrastructure here. I've got, I've made a lot of friends that are producers and engineers. There's amazing engineers here, and Julian sure. Dreyer, Jim Georgeson, uh, Clay is here. These guys are are great. They record all the time, and for the first time on BJ's album, I relinquished all of the engineering duties completely to uh, Julian and um, to another to another engineer to another person. I don't consider myself an engineer, but. Uh, and that was such a great experience for me because I wasn't exhausted at the end, at you know, at the seven hour point of right. of the first day. And we actually cut two songs because I was in the headspace to do it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and and he got great tones. Like I couldn't be happier. Nice. So that's that's new. Uh, I'm. Uh, my goal is I don't even want to mix anymore. I mean, I, I, I'll always mix as a third-party mixer because I do like that, right. but I don't want to mix my own productions ultimately. I'd rather I'd rather have someone else do that. So the goal for me here is to attract uh, national acts and, and, and acts that have a reasonable budget. And uh, I can put together the package. I can. Uh, we have all the guitars anybody'd need, all the keyboards anybody need. Everything you'd need is in this town, uh, as far as musicians and 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 anything to make your album. The studio has a house, so if you if we book, you know, a couple weeks, two three weeks with a, with with an artist, they can stay at the house. Sure, it's, it's a fabulous house. I love it. Um, I've stayed there many times before I moved here. That's where I would stay. And, um, uh, so that, that's what, what I'm looking to do here is to try and, and really, uh, bring in regional acts and, uh, and, and expand even national acts and get them to come here and come to Asheville and record. Yeah. Cause we've got everything that you need here. Yeah. And you seem, you know, you seem to like like it as just a place you know it's not just because of the studio cultures you mentioned that you, you just like it. it's beautiful and you know it's a great place to be just on a per on a personal level i love Asheville. it's the first place i've ever actually lived where i actually love the place like like uh, i when i never really understood when people said oh i just i love this place i have to live here and um and uh, for the first time, I totally understand that now. Like, I adore this place. It's it's very uh, concentrated, artistic community. It's small. It's it's which is unusual for me. Small is unusual, but it's not so. It's not too small. And um, 
it's just got an enormous amount of amazing food. I'm a bit of a foodie, so you know, right. The, it it reminds me of Melbourne, Australia, in that hmm. in that it's really actually hard to find a bad restaurant. Yeah, they they spent the Consumers Visitor Bureau spent millions and millions of dollars on 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 tourism and particularly their food service here and as a result it's paying great dividends it's a 500 million dollar a year business here wow the food and now the consumer visitors bureau is putting that kind of money into music which was part of the calculus of me coming here because i knew that that was going on and so they're going to be investing big time to attract people to and to make Asheville kind of a music hub and so i want to try along with with some of the people here like michael selvern who who's been here for 10 years he's a very uh, knowledgeable producer and a friend of mine um, and Jessica Thomason who runs Echo Mountain and Josh Blake another amazing producer here we're all trying to make this a place that uh, 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 you know to increase the uh, the make this a place that people come to make records not just to visit to hear records but to make records too sure yeah and I mean, I think it's a noble goal. I, you know, being in Tulsa, you know, I, I like Tulsa. I grew up here, um, you know, and it's it's not a very, you know, huge place. You know, I think it's like, yeah. you know, on the top 50 largest cities in the country, but it's, you know, like 48, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so, you know, it's a great place. It's sort of like a big, small town, you know, you've got how many people? Uh, I think we've got I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up, honestly. Uh, Three or four hundred? Yeah. Oh, a couple maybe. hundred? Yeah, we got 80. We're 80K here, so you're you're at least two times bigger, two and a half times bigger than, than Asheville. But I bet you there's a whole lot more of nothing. <laughs> Asheville's just two hours outside of Charlotte, which, and I didn't even know this till recently, which is like the 17th biggest city in the U.S., huh. so that's a big city. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of infrastructure here. So it's good, you know. I like it. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, I'm, it's cold though. It was forty-five this morning. Mm, yeah, not used to that from uh, LA side of things. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, no. it's. I think it's noble that you know you you want to be involved in the community because I feel like in LA, you know, you don't have to you don't have to personally feel like I got to make this a music town because you know it's LA. <laughs> You know, like uh, you don't have to even. It's already. It's already been done. Yeah. No. It, yeah. So it's nice that you have that sort of. You can. The problem is LA is so big that it's hard to 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 really conquer it. I mean, yeah. Conquer is probably not the best word, but but here, uh, I already in a year's time pretty much know all the players, and there's there's plenty more people for me to meet. But I'm already entrenched in LA. I. It's so widespread. You, you never really feel entrenched. I've, I mean, I, I know a lot, a lot of people in the business, of course, but they're so spread out. It's not concentrated like it is here. Right. Yeah. And and I, I've experienced, like early on when I started, I was going to go to Seattle and uh, I talked to a friend of mine who owns a studio up there and he he's one of those sort of guys, I would love to call him a mentor, but he really just gave me some good advice a couple times, but those particular pieces of advice probably saved my life (laughs) because he basically said, number one, don't go to school. Uh, Don't go to school for audio. (laughs) Uh, He said, number two. That's good advice, I think. He said, you'll get more experience by just you know, calling up your friends and saying, hey, you want to record with me? I'll do it for free. And then slowly, hey, I'll do it for 50 bucks. And then, hey. Exactly. And so that's like, 
you know, of course, back then I was like, well, okay, I, I guess I trust this guy. He's got a nice studio and he's been doing it 20 years. I guess I should listen. Thankfully, I listened. Um, yeah. The second piece of advice was he said, you'll always be happier if you are a big fish in a small pond. Now, I didn't really understand. He's like, but, you know, if there, if you're in a place that has a need, you don't have to be in Nashville or L.A. to, like, feel complete. You know what I mean? And you don't have to. Like, if you're in a city uh, like Asheville or even like Tulsa that, that has a music community there that has needs that need to be met, like, you could be a bigger fish in that pond. Or you could be a small fish in L.A. and, you know, be competing with people your entire life. Not that, you know, the goal is to be a big fish, but I think you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, for me, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, I found that to work for me where, you know, I have, I do this full time. You know, I ha I don't have a Grammy or anything. I don't have a, you know, but I, I provide a service that bands need that indie bands need and you know some some signed work some major label work m very minimal on the major label side but most of it's unsigned bands most of it's local guys and tri-state area guys um you know coming in and and making cool records and i'm very fortunate that i can do this full time and i think a lot of it stems from taking his advice uh on that topic that you know like don't get this mentality. You know, he told me, he was like, sure, you could move up to Seattle and I'd give you a great day rate to rent out the studio and you could, you know, have clients here. So he's like, but you've lived in Tulsa your whole life. He's like, how many musicians do you know? And I'm like, well, I know a lot of musicians. And he's like, how many musicians do you know in Seattle? Right. You know, I was like, well, none. <laughs> and he's like, how many musicians do you think I know in Seattle? I, you know, he's like, I'm 41. I've been doing the studio for 20 years. I know way more musicians than you. He's like, you're competing with me. He's like, and I'm not trying to run you out of town. I'm just presenting the reality here. Like, yeah. you're starting from nothing. And he's like, whereas you have a, a place. He's like, and as long as you don't hate your hometown, you know, and he's like, do you like Tulsa? I was like, yeah, I like Tulsa. My my family's here. You know, I, I don't mind the city. Right. Um, not a fan of the political climate necessarily, but, uh, you know, that's not my problem really. Um, you can't, you know. If you base your whole happiness on that, then you'll always be mad. <laughs> um, you know, moving to North Carolina, North Carolina is a red state. It's the first time I've ever lived in a red state, although it is turning blue. It is trending blue. But uh, yeah, the thing I would say about that is at least my vote means something here. You know, in California, I would vote for a Democrat. The Democrat was going to win anyway. So what is what does my vote mean at that point? Yeah. And then if shit's going down in Congress, I'm writing to my congressman to tell him something that they already agree with me on. So how is that helping? Right. Really? But here, if I <laughs> right. if I pitch out my congressman, at least I'm giving him some feedback that he's going to have to consider. You know. Sure. There's something a little more satisfying about being able to pitch out my. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um. So my last question is just um. What is the best place for people to get your books? You know, you mentioned Amazon, but I think I remember seeing at one point uh, that you prefer people to buy them either on your website or on Barnes & Noble website. Is there a specific place people should go? No, I mean, people should buy it where they want to buy it. It's, nah, it's on Barnes & Noble. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. Get it wherever you feel like buying it. I don't tell people where they should buy stuff. You know, I mean... uh if Amazon's where you buy it, buy it there. It doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, it's in stores. It's in uh, it's in music stores. It's uh, they sell online in all sorts of places. So buy wherever you like to buy. It. <laughs> all right, fair enough. If you just type in hashtag Mixerman, 
and the billionaire parent, you'll find it. Gotcha. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to say thanks. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to do this. I know you're, uh, you know, got lots of stuff to do, but uh, it's great to hear from you. It's great to hear about what's going on in your world lately. And um, I'll make sure and plug the books and tell everyone where they can get uh, the new book as well as the, uh, the Zen and the Art of, which, by the way, I think those are awesome. They're some of the most like down to earth, like, hey, practical recording manuals, you know, and producing and mixing. They're very, very sort of straightforward. Oh, thank you. And because there's not, you know, there's so much stuff all over the internet about, oh, this is, uh, you know, and don't get me wrong, there's some good info, but there's not a lot of it that's, that's sort of laid out in a very like, hey, don't do this. This is a bad decision. You probably should consider this. There you go. You know what I mean? Um, You know, and, and that's, I think it's really helpful. I think I appreciate it. Yeah, I think the books are written in a very sort of natural, conversational manner. They don't feel like you are saying this is the best way. This is the only way. You know, they still feel like you're saying this is how I would approach it. You'd have it'd be good if you considered doing it this way, but you don't have to. You know, uh, and I feel like they they present a wide enough scope. I have very strong opinions based on my experiences, and I present those opinions and. Uh, at least it gives the reader somewhere to start. Or if you've been doing it for a while, it gives you possibly uh, either confirmation, affirmation, or perhaps even uh, um, something new to try. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of engineers who do things that I've never been able to make work for me. Right. You know, does that mean that they're they're, they're doing something they shouldn't know if it were, uh, you know, guys put two mics on, on guitar amplifiers. I fucking hate that. But, yeah. but when Julian does that for me, I let him do it. Cause that's how he gets his tone. And so the tone is good. All I care about at the end of the day is the tone good. But if I try and make a guitar with two mics, I never like it. <laughs> and I always end up with one mic. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's many ways to do things and it's art. And uh, sometimes, you know, I just don't find when people offer these milk toast things, well, you could do this or you could try this or maybe this will work or whatever. Fuck that. This is what I do. This is why I do it. Now you go figure out what works for you based on having heard what works for someone else. Right, right. That's the way I view it. Gotcha. Well, thanks for sitting down and taking a, taking a visit with us. And be sure to send everybody to mixerman.net. Will do. I I will. <laughs> All right. Cool, man. Thank you. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, special thanks again to Mixer Man for taking the time out of his schedule to do this. You know, he's a very busy guy. Make sure you check out his books. Uh, all five of them are awesome. I have all of them. I can tell you personally, they're great reads. You'll learn a whole lot. Uh, and check out his website, MixerMan.net. As always, for all things Recording Lounge, you can check out recordingloungepodcast.com. You can send me an email there if you have questions, comments, concerns, cigar suggestions, uh, etc. You can also check out a resource hub where we have links to a lot of things, including uh, Mixer Man's books. Um, Also, if you're interested in supporting the podcast financially, you can make PayPal donations over at our website, or you can be a patron of the podcast on Patreon, which means that you will 
give a small donation to the podcast every time new content is posted. Whereas the PayPal, you know, to contrast, the PayPal donation is just like a monthly thing or whenever you feel like donating, the Patreon will only come out uh, when, when there's content released. So those are both great options. I greatly, greatly appreciate all the people who have done that so far. It really helps to offset the cost of hosting. Uh, the, we're starting to get up to quite a few episodes now, so uh, it just gets more expensive and we all have the, have the new website and all that stuff. So I so, so appreciate all the people who have uh, donated to either of those. Um, anyway, guys, uh, make sure to keep checking back for new episodes. I've got two new episodes that I'm trying to get out before the end of the year. Hopefully three if I can. Like I said, it's been crazy around here in the studio lately. Uh, at the end of the year is always kind of a toss-up. Nobody wants to really record anything new, but everyone's trying to finish their stuff. Like, you know, it's kind of almost like the opposite of a New Year's resolution. Everyone's like, I want to get done by the end of the year. I want to get done before Christmas. I want to get, you know, and I get that. Uh, so, you know, you got a lot of projects going though at the same time that starts to get a little tricky timing everything out and when, it, you know, when does these people need the release and they need it by this date and these people need it by this date. So it's been real hard around here, but I'm so glad to have gotten out this show and I hope to get out two or three more by the end of the year. Uh, but anyway, guys, uh, for those of you that celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you guys enjoy your Thanksgiving this coming week and uh, I'll talk to you guys soon.